Well, let's open our word, and I'm going to open the word of God with a warning. Two warnings, actually. First, I want us to come to Second Peter, First Peter rather, chapter two. First Peter two, and verse sixteen. A warning about the misuse of freedom and liberty. God has given us freedom and liberty. We can misuse it or we can use it for our salvation. Here's what was said by Peter. 1 Peter 2.16 As free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness but as the servants of God. Listen. We can declare our liberty and become malicious people. Even Seventh-day Adventists, even truth-believing Seventh-day Adventists can become malicious people. But God is saying, no, you're not to use your liberty for maliciousness. We are to be the most loving and lovable Christians. We are to be the kind of people that are like magnets that draw people to the love of Jesus. Not to us, of course, but to God himself. Jude puts it strongly too. Jude verse 4. Another warning of how to misuse our liberty. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. You can use your freedom that way. Turn the grace of God, which of course provides the liberty for us, into wickedness, evil, licentiousness, lasciviousness. Oh, dear brethren and sisters, when we realize the fullness of the liberty of Jesus Christ, let us each one use it, not as a cloak for wickedness, not for maliciousness, but that we might be better able to shed the love and truth of Jesus to this world. Now, in saying the things that we're saying on liberty, let us recognize there is an appropriate role for worldly governments. They are ordained of God. And just as we talk about the responsibility of leadership to provide the freedom for the citizens of a nation. So we also have to remind ourselves that we have obligations that are ordained of God to those who are in leadership and who are in rulership. And I want us to go over to Romans 13 where it's presented and I know there are people argue, in fact, uh, I was not long ago up in Wisconsin and I had a family with an indifferent a different perspective. I said, I don't know how you can take the um, position that you're taking in the light of Romans 13. They said that they had decided not to pay any taxes anymore to the government. Well, I don't read that in the scriptures. And I believe in the end it will be bring a discredit upon God's people like you. Of course, I want to um, avoid any unnecessary taxes, but I believe that we have a responsibility to render, as Jesus said, unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, as well as unto God the things that are God. Now let's read 
um, this chapter. And I want us to notice the, the strength of the statement, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. Now, we might think that's talking about um, God and, and, uh, and heaven, but it isn't in this particular case. For there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Who Now remember, he's writing at the time of the autocratic rule of the Romans. But he still acknowledges our responsibility. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. Strong words from Paul. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore ye must needs be subject not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. All right. Now, our subjection to government is not just to protect ourselves or because of fear or the wrath of and so on. It is for conscience sake. We have a conscientious responsibility to be the best citizens in the land in which we live. We should be known as upright men and women, trustworthy men who are men and women who are above all the average tenants that we find amongst humanity today. When someone says he's a Seventh-day Adventist, that automatically ought to say there is an upright man. There is a citizen that we can trust. That should be the way it is. The fact that today we have an increasing number, I don't know what it's like over here. Well, I know it's a little bit like it over here, but I don't know it very well. But in America, an increasing number of Seventh-day Adventists in jail today. I mean, for valid reasons. There'll be time when there'll be more, but some for righteousness' sake. It's sad. But these things are happening. <laughs> God's people are losing the, the, the contact with the Lord as they should have. You notice it's in verse 6 it says, For this cause pay ye tribute also, or tax, for they are God's ministers attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Now, there is an increasing number, at least it seems to me, of Seventh-day Adventists in the United States saying the government has no right to legislate morality. We need to be careful how we say that, brethren and sisters. I don't think we understand sometimes what we're saying. Of course the government has been set up to legislate, at least against immorality. But the problem is when government moves from the last six commandments into the first four commandments. After all, it would be a pretty sorry state if there were no laws against murder or theft or against the kind of lying and perjury that goes with it and so on. 
We've got to have those laws. Government has not only a right to legislate, they have a responsibility to legislate and to administer laws of protection to the citizens of the nation. And so be careful when we say that. I heard it a lot when the Christian coalition came together and when the uh, evangelicals and Catholics got together because they were talking about Congress had to legislate laws to safeguard the uh, morality of the nation. Now, if we keep saying, well, they've got no right to do this, we sound as if we're anarchists or something or we're opposed to government. What we've got to tell them, and this is what I'm trying to do, and we're going to, when we get our our book out on religious liberty, which is ready to go to press now, it's called Liberty in the Balance. Our purpose is to find enough funds, if we can, to get it to every um, member of Congress, every member of Congress, and if possible, to all the members of the state, the 50 state houses in America, together with some of the leading jurists of the United States, <coughs> and also to some of these religious leaders, that they might understand that there is a proper role, and we support them in calling for government to legislate morality when it's related to the last six commandments man's relationship to man but also to have them understand that there is no way that properly government can legislate in the first four commandments man's responsibility to his God now that has always been a difficult division for governments whether it was here in England whether it was in the United in fact all over the world it's been difficult and we're going to look at that situation but it's Educative to notice that when Paul is talking about this responsibility, he immediately enunciates the last five commandments. None of the first commandments. You'll notice reading from verse 8, O no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet, and if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And so, brethren and sisters, it's, it's interesting that he puts those commandments with the obligation that we owe to government, indicating the domain in which government has responsibilities. So let us be very vigorous in saying that government has the right to legislate against all sorts of crimes against the person and property and so on of a fellow man and reputation, etc. But on the other hand, government has no responsibility, can take no responsibility in the first four commandments. Some say, and some have said to me, well, also the fifth commandment's not there. Honour thy father and thy mother, and the relationship of the family should be inviolate as far as government is concerned. That's another interesting perspective that some have, have suggested in the choice of only the last five commandments by Paul to illustrate the domain of government. 
I believe that no one who sincerely believes in religious freedom or civil freedom or both, indeed we believe in all forms of freedom, can take up that issue without being concerned for the oppressed of the earth. It is estimated that still one-third of the Christians in this world are under oppressive governments. That's the estimation of um, uh, some of the uh, amnesty groups. One-third of Christians are still under oppressive governments, and some of those are Seventh-day Adventists. But we want to see freedom for all. We may not think it is important to have freedom for Roman Catholics as the, for Seventh-day Adventists, but we've even got to be interested in the freedom for Roman Catholics or for Muslims or for Hindus or for Buddhists, Shinduists. We may despise their religion, but we have a responsibility. I'm reading here from a 19th century poem by James Russell, Russell Lowell, just a few words out of the full poem. No, true freedom is to share all the chains our brothers wear and with heart and hand to be earnest to make others free. It's one thing to want freedom for ourselves. Maybe we only will get activated when we see oppression coming upon ourselves. It's too late then. You remember the statement of Pastor Niemöller, the Lutheran, pastor after the Second World War. Did anyone remember that? They came for the Jews and I wasn't a Jew. They came from the, the communists and I wasn't a communist. They came for the trade unionists and I wasn't a... And they went on. But then they came to me and there was no one to stand for me. I had the privilege as a boy of listening to Pastor Niemöller when he visited Australia soon after the Second World War. He was a striking man, spoke good English, and uh, wasn't the best of place where they had the meeting. It was in the boxing stadium in Newcastle. But at least we heard a man that had stood during the Nazi situation when many had failed. We've got to be willing to stand up. How can we sit so calmly when myriads of people do not share the freedom that we have here in Great Britain today? And if we remain silent, then how can we then ask others to stand up for us? Before we finish this series, I'm going to read the most unbelievable appeal by a, a, a U.S. senator on behalf of Seventh-day Adventists last century that changed the laws of the state of Arkansas. By the way, that senator was the grandson of Davy Crockett. You might have heard of Davy Crockett, the frontier man in America. This was Senator uh, Richard Crockett, a grandson, and what a masterful speech. And single-handedly almost, he stopped the persecution against Seventh-day Adventists there in Arkansas. It's a remarkable 
appeal. But look, we can't expect people to stand up for us if we're not willing to stand up for others. I find it very difficult to hear or read about in the newspaper uh, persecution or in magazines or wherever I might hear it without writing a letter. You might say, what's it worth? What can one person do? Listen, I'm here to tell you, brethren and sisters, that one person can make a difference. I'm not saying 100 people. I'm saying one person. The most outstanding case to me that I know personally is that of Dr. Henry Tudor Nation. Some of you know Dr. Henry from Thailand that came to one or two of our camp meetings, our world camp meetings. Any of you remember him? He was in, I think, um, at least a couple of those camp meetings. Now, Dr. Henry is an extraordinarily courageous man. You might not have gathered that in meeting him. I know the the strength with which he goes after a righteous cause. But a few years ago, not many years ago, there was a change of government in Thailand, which is very frequent. Coup after coup, usually bloodless coups, fortunately. But a new government had come in, a new prime minister. And immediately, virtually, they set about revamping the Thai constitution. Henry got a copy of the draft. And they had given a special privilege under the government to the Buddhists. Now, that's not ununderstandable when you consider that 95% of Thais are Buddhists. But the previous constitution had no such privileged role. And he realized the danger of this. So he called up two men that he knew, two professors, one a Buddhist, one a Muslim. And he talked earnestly to them about it and said, we've got to do something about it. Will you meet me? Yes, they both said that they didn't agree with it either, even the Buddhist professor. So they got together and they worked on the clause involved and worked out new language that would take away all privilege a special privilege for the Buddhists over and above any other religion. Now remember that Thailand is the 18th most populous nation in the world. It's almost the same population as Great Britain, but going ahead of Great Britain. Well over 60 million people in Thailand, so it's not a tiny nation amongst the nations of the world. And so when they had done all this and worked on it with several meetings and, and tried to get everything the way they wanted, Henry said to them, now we've got to go and visit the Prime Minister. The other two vanished. They, weren't, they would help him on it, but they weren't going to put their neck on the line and Henry turned to his wife and he said, it's obviously you and me. Most of us would say hopeless. But not Dr. Henry. And they marched there and they got an audience with some of the top officials in the government. 
and they sat down for several hours explaining the dangers of this and how this put them outside the proper role of government and that enlightened nations did not put privileged positions for any religion. They gave religious freedom and equality to any religion and the consciences of men. And this man knew his religious freedom concepts. And that was struck out of that proposed constitution and Thailand today because of one man does not have a privileged clause for the Buddhist that would have impinged upon the role of other religious groups. Now remember, Seventh-day Adventists, are, Christians are less than 1% in Thailand. So just try and work out how many Adventists there are there. What percentage? You see, you can say, it can't be done, but God, uh, one man with God is what? A majority. And if we're going to talk about religious freedom, brethren and sisters, we're going to have to talk about our own involvement in it. Some of us don't want to be involved. Oh, yes. We can sit back. But we have to answer for that in the kingdom. I think of what A.T. Jones did. Senator Henry William Blair was a powerful senator in New York. If we get time, I'll read you some of the nefarious arguments of Blair. They were dangerous concepts. They would have struck religious freedom. He said he believed the American people would rid the nation of all religions other than the Christian religion in its valid form. What do you think that would have done to Seventh-day Adventists? That's what Blair believed. And he was spouting that 110 years ago very strongly. But A.T. Jones, supported by Elder Corliss, went to make a presentation before the Senate committee set up to look into the development of Sunday legislation. Now here was an unknown Seventh-day Adventist minister or two ministers representing a very tiny church against one of the most powerful senators of his day, Henry William Blair. I've been amazed at reading the arguments of A.T. Jones. Simple, precise, logical, and obviously impelling because he won the day and the Senate subcommittee recommended no such thing as a National Sunday Law. You see... They could have left it and said, here it comes. It's been prophesied. Well, it's going to come, we know. But we've got to do what we can. And even if we failed in our mission, let us keep in mind that there is going to be someone sitting there 
that is going to be impressed and maybe even led to the Lord and to a further study of our beliefs as a result of the testimony that we give. Don't be afraid to make testimonies. That's the call that we have. We cannot be limp noodles when it comes to religious liberty. We've got to be stalwart standard bearers for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Because not only our own freedom depends upon it, the freedoms of multitudes depend upon it. We cannot let one erosion of the right principles of religious liberty to be trodden underfoot. And that is what is happening today. Too few are rising up. I know the, from personal experience, the importance that one person can make. It was just after we had commenced Heartland. It was in the first year, early in 1984. We began in July of 83. I think it was February or March of 84. And I was sitting in my office. And about 9 o'clock, my phone rang. And uh, a woman on the phone that I barely knew, but when she identified herself, I knew who she was. She said, Aren't you over there at the State House today? Quite almost demandingly. Well, sister, you wouldn't have gotten me in my office if I was over at the State House. Why should I be there? I knew there had to be some reason why she was. Well, the ad hoc committee of the, the House and Senate, the State House and Senate, is hearing testimony on homeschooling. Now, Britain has some pretty easy situations, as I read the law here, for homeschoolers. Much better than in most other countries. Well, I said, when does it start? She says, 10 o'clock. I said, it'll take me nearly two hours to get there. But I said, I'll still go. I called Brother Mayor. I said, you better come with me. I told him what was happening. And in no time, we're on our way speeding, according to the law, of course, within the law, to Richmond. <coughs> well, when I got there, the, 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 the hall was packed with people. You see, the laws were very restrictive. And there were people facing jail sentences right at that very time. So there was an electrification on the issue in Virginia. And when I went up to the book which put your name down, I noticed I would be number 57 on the list. Of course, I was a little late to get an early statement. But I noticed that they were on number 23. Everyone had two minutes. Now, that if you want to be forced into saying something worthwhile and without introductions or conclusions, get two minutes to say it in. You've just got to focus. So that's what I did. Thinking, what can I say? And I was listening to people. Some were very angry as they, they talked for their two minutes. Others were pleading. Some were saying, I'm representing three families, but they dare not come here. They don't want to be identified. You know, there was fear. And there were Catholics that were coming too, by the way. I remember this Catholic nurse. 
She said she had six children, but I can't send them to the Catholic school anymore. She was very adamant about that. And I found others felt the same way. There are good people in the Catholic Church that hate the secularization of their schools too, just like we hate it in our schools. They may have the wrong theology, they may have the wrong understanding, but they're sincere enough to know they don't want their children in that kind of an environment. And so she said, that's why I'm homeschooling my children. She was in a nursing outfit. She just got time off from the hospital where she's working and then had to go back. But she wanted to make a testimony. There were others that, that um, talked earnestly, but most of them were saying about the same thing over and over again. I watched the senators and... and uh, the representatives, there are about 15 total, about half and half. And I saw some of them looking a bit dreary and hardly listening. You know, hour after hour of testimony, you've got two minutes, but 57 take more than two hours. You know, by the time people sit down, another one gets up and starts. and that. I suppose it went close to three hours, this, this meeting. Well, of course, it's getting closer, and I'm saying, Lord, give me something different to say. I wanted to wake them up. And this is approximately what I said. You only got two minutes. I told them that I was president of a new college in Virginia and we had chosen Virginia because out of 14 of the states along the eastern seaboard, only the Commonwealth of Virginia had a religious exemption clause so that we could operate that college according to the way we believe God wanted us to operate it. And then I said, thank the Lord for Thomas Jefferson, because he put that clause in the, uh, the legislature of Virginia 200-plus years before, about 200 years at that time. It's always good in Virginia to mention uh, Jefferson. I found that uh, they like that. But I said, now what we're asking today is for the same opportunity for the parents of high school and elementary school to be able to educate their children according to their conscience. Then I concluded with these remarks. We have the opportunity here in Virginia to decide whether we are going to follow the Christian Judeo concepts of education or the Greek pagan concepts of education. They hadn't heard anything about that. I was at least getting attention. And then I explained it. The Christian Judeo concept of education gives the prerogatives in education to the parents. But the Greek pagan concept says the state has the prerogatives. And I said that has been the cry of every totalitarian nation ever since. Whether it be the Nazis of Germany, whether it be the communists of the Soviet Union, which was still very much intact in 1984, or anywhere else. And I said we don't want the Commonwealth of Virginia to follow the totalitarian <laughs> concepts of these kinds of nations. I went to sit down and one of the representatives held me. He wasn't favorable, I could tell. And he said, where are you from? He would noted the accent. 
I honestly believe he thought I was from England. And he would think in the old world here that they'd be very tough on homeschooling and so on. I just turned him, sir, I'm from Australia originally. He said no more. He probably thought a new world country would be as free as a breeze. In reality, Australia is much tougher than Great Britain, but I didn't tell him that. But as soon as it was over, and there's only one speaker after me, and that happened to be the woman that called me up, she dived over there. One of the senators and one of the representatives came racing over to where I was and asked if I would come up to their office and help them because they were favourable to homeschooling, the senator especially. And uh, he said, look, here are, are all the provisions. I know we, we might be able to get some homeschool bill through the House, but it's going to be very difficult through the Senate. And which one of these things... He wanted me to sit down with him and help him decide what should be in there that were non-negotiable to give parents a freedom and what he could give a little on so that they could get a bill through the Senate if possible. And we spent maybe an hour, hour and a half together. You see, you, you've got to do something. But I read in the paper that the next week, the same day the next week, the Board of education for Virginia was meeting to make its recommendation on homeschooling to the, uh, to the State House. I said, I've got to get back for that one. So, uh, of course, I, didn't, I wasn't late for that one because I already knew it in advance. But, in fact, I was quite early and I picked up a Richmond Times dispatch, the main morning newspaper in Richmond, and uh, I wanted to see if it had anything about it. And sure enough, they said today the Board of Edu Education is meeting to make a recommendation on homeschooling to the State House. And it said, but there is little hope that, that, board, uh, that the Board will recommend any kind of a homeschool bill. You can understand that they're, they're public school all the way. It was very disarming to read that in the newspaper. When we got there, we couldn't believe it. Only four people turned up to give testimony. The masses that were at the other meeting, and of course not all gave testimony, some were just there to hear what was saying, and only four of us, including Mary Kay Clark, that had been there, she was a Roman Catholic, she'd been a principal of a Roman Catholic school, a very outstanding woman. We went for walks together. I learned to admire that woman, She'd even tried Adventist education for her children, but was disappointed. She asked me, why is the Home Study Institute not more Seventh-day Adventist? Kind of an embarrassing question. And she gave me her material that she recommends to Catholic homeschoolers, especially on reading and literature. Don't read these novels, she said. Don't read this drama. It sounded like a Seventh-day Adventist. Her alternatives we would reject out of hand, but we could understand her principles. Read the papal encyclical. Get the, your children to read the papal encyclicals. The Lives of Saints. You see, she had the right principle. She just had the wrong religion. Wonderful woman. Well, there are two others. The two others really said virtually nothing. Only really the testimony 
really relied on Mary, Kay, Clark, and myself. I made a similar speech. I didn't see any reason to change it. And we sat there while they debated it back and forwards and to the shock of everyone, the reporter sitting in that room, they voted six to three to recommend a home school bill. To, and that broke the back of the Senate that they thought was going to be so tough when the Board of Education recommended. You've got to go. You've got to do something. One of our students from Heartland, a 19-year-old young lady, went all the way back to Montana when they were trying to close up the liberal situation. Montana had no restrictions on homeschooling at that time. All it said was that the uh, State House was responsible for public education. Would have nothing to do with private education, homeschooling. That was between you and your family. Well, some of the legislators thought that was a little too liberal. And so they started to get together to put down some restrictions and parameters. This young lady went back. And numbers of people told me she won the day. A 19-year-old. I heard her testimony on tape later. She told them how she'd left Montana and gone all the way over to the East Coast to a college that was unaccredited, unstate authorized, so that she could have the kind of education she believed God wanted her to have. She was that open. And here in Montana, we have such a wonderful situation for the parents of the children and youth. And I'm making an ap appeal that we retain the situation as it is, and that dropped it. They didn't go ahead with it, and today Montana is still as free as a breeze for homeschoolers. Is it worth one person trying to do something? I'm giving you these examples so you will understand that... You might say, well, I'm not much of a speaker, but at least do what you can. I'm not much of a writer. Do what you can. God is calling for us to safeguard the boundaries of Christianity. That's a God-given responsibility. How can we have people turn to the wonderful everlasting gospel if they're in chains and bondage by governmental reg regulations and restrictions and laws? We've got to fight for that. We've got to work for it. That's part of being a true and faithful Seventh-day Adventist, my dear brethren and sisters. And we can't abdicate God's responsibilities. Several years ago, I'm just highlighting a couple of the letters that I've written in recent times. This, but they... Shelver point. I've written... I can't say hundreds of letters, but many, many letters to where I've read about totalitarian issues, especially in the field of religious liberty, but even in the field of civil liberties. I read in the American press that 64 Jehovah's Witnesses had been imprisoned in Singapore. It was an illegal religion. I understand why they made it Illegal because they won't salute the flag and uh, that is anathema and so on. Now, I don't believe what Jehovah's Witnesses believe. In fact, 
I am very much opposed to some of their beliefs. But I believe they have the right of freedom of worship. So I wrote a letter to the Prime Minister of Singapore explaining that by now they had developed into a respected nation in the nations of the, earth, of the world and explaining that in spite of the fact that Jehovah's Witnesses refuse to salute flags and perhaps might do things that some people think are anti-patriotic, nevertheless they make fine citizens. And on the whole, they are people that live by a life of moral obedience and their citizenship is not to be questioned. And other countries that have given them the freedom to worship in spite of the fact they hold the same uh, concepts that they hold in Singapore, nevertheless, they have proven to be good citizens in those nations. And that was an appeal. I forget all the things I said, but it was along those lines. I don't know how it happened. I don't know whether the Prime Minister got it. I don't know whether someone read it, one of his lower level office. I don't know who read it. But I got the shock of my life when that letter was read at an international um, freedom conference in Canada as an example of the kind of letters that we should be sent to governments on behalf of repressed people. I don't know how it got there. I don't know how it got into the hands of this person. It wasn't as if I distributed this all over the place. You see, it's worth, uh, worth your effort. You don't know what it's going to do. Just recently, I've written a letter to the Prime Minister of Malaysia, Mr. Mattia Muhammad. There was legislating pending which seemed certain to pass, whether it has passed or finalised, I don't know. But stiffening the requirements that would prohibit Muslims from weakening in their Muslim faith to any other religion, or to no religion at all, by the way. Eventually providing a three-year jail sentence. I couldn't sit there and not write a letter. I've been to Malaysia, of course, several times. Russell worked there twice. And again, very politely, I pointed out that they were a member of the United Nations, not that I am fond of the United Nations, and that the United Nations guaranteed religious liberty to peoples around the world. That was part of their charter, their original charter. And that this was in violation of that. I point out that they had been a fast in spite of the downturn they've had recently with all most other Asiatic nations, a fast-growing economic nation rising in the Asiatic um, Pacific area. And that the respect would be lost by many nations and many peoples if they went ahead with this kind of legislation. And I pointed out that it's not worth anything to coerce somebody in their religious practices. I then wrote a letter to the President of the United States concerning it, to the Secretary General of the United Nations, 
to the majority and minority leaders in the House and in the Senate. I believe that these people have to know that nations are not going to sit by idly when people's liberty is being threatened. In fact, Malaysia does have a very shaky record in this area. I mentioned the situation the, uh, between toleration and liberty. Probably one of the best illustrations of the difference between toleration and liberty is Malaysia. Because in the Malaysian constitution there is a toleration clause. Few nations deal with their citizens so discriminatively as does Malaysia. Number one, in some of the states of Malaysia, only Muslims can hold property. That's rather discriminative, isn't it? Not all the states, but especially in the northeast states of Peninsular Malaysia. Freedom is much greater um, in Sabah and Sarawak than it is in Peninsular Malaysia, whatever you belong to. There is great care taken to make sure that a Muslim majority are in Congress. In higher education, at least up to very recently, maybe still the case, 90% of those who are taken into Malaysian universities are Malays, when they represent only 45% of the population. And by the way, you have to realize that uh, some of those Chinese and Indians are extraordinarily sharp students. I remember being over there when their results came out and the maximum passes were given. 49 students in Malaysia got the maximum pass, whatever that was, there. And they had the list of the names. So 48 were Chinese names. One was a Muslim name. Could have been Malay or Indian. Tells you something. But only 10% can get into a Malaysian university if they are not Malays, meaning not or not Muslim. You cannot get rank, senior rank in the army unless you are a Muslim. It's amazing the number of Chinese Muslims that are high up in the, the army causes them to convert. It's discrimination. Some of the discrimination, I think, is in favor of the non-Malays. For example, the adultery laws. I read in the paper this woman who'd committed adultery in Malay, she got two years and certain number of lashes. Didn't sound too good. But if she'd been Chinese or Indian or any other race, she wouldn't they wouldn't have even noticed it. You can preach however you like to the Indians and the Malay uh, Indians and Chinese. No problem. As soon as you 
are known to have talked about Christ to the Malays. You have disturbed the peace, maybe two years in jail. The recent case of a New Zealand young man, I think he was Pentecostal, he wasn't an Adventist, but all he did was try to tell a little group of Malays um, how wonderful God was and how wonderful the scriptures were. But he was immediately on charges for blaspheming Allah and the Koran. And he didn't mention them. Hadn't said a word about them. I tell you, the New Zealand High Commissioner in Malaysia took a very, very dim view of it. And obviously there were strong diplomatic protests and so on to the government. And every day of the trial, this went on for a number of days, this trial, they had a high uh, official from the High Commissioner's office sitting in a prominent place monitoring everything that was taking place in that trial. The New Zealanders were not going to let the Malay government have a free run on this. In the end, of course, he was found guilty. That was inevitable. But they only sentenced him to one day in jail and then expelled him from the country never again to return. Maybe he wouldn't want to return, I don't know. But what? That's toleration. Now we should be clear on this today. 400 years ago this year was the Treaty of, uh, of Nantes in France, or Edict of Nantes. Remember the Edict of Nantes? You remember that Henry IV, the new king of France, had been brought up a Protestant. But of course he was willing to capitulate to Catholicism to take over the crown. He's reported to have said, Paris is worth a mass. Not much of a Protestant. But he remembered his Protestant friends and the Huguenots and so on and wanted to help them. So he called the leadership of the Huguenots together for a public signing of the Treaty of Nantes. Now, you re those of you that have been to the Reformation Wall there in Geneva will see the uh, depiction of that meeting. Some of, how many have been to that wall? You'll remember it. And you'll remember that it shows the leader of the Huguenots walking out on the meeting because he was so upset that it would be toleration and not freedom. And well he might have been. Because while they were loved by Henry IV, the time came when the Treaty of Nantes was revoked by Louis XIV. And in his statement of the revocation of that treaty of toleration or edict of toleration, Louis XIV said, My grandfather loved the Huguenots. My father feared the Huguenots. I neither loved them nor fear them. And signed back. You see, toleration gives the government the right to decide yea or nay. 
But true freedom is above the government, above any human authority. I remember in uh, 1895 that the whole lesson quarterly was on religious liberty. Have any of you ever seen that? Uh, Ray DiCarlo did some reproductions. You should get some of them over here. It's, a, it's very good. And they had a whole lesson on liberty or toleration. They understood the principles. I better understand the time. Um, we have to realize that toleration is not acceptable. Freedom is. Let us care for our brethren, our brothers and our sisters in around the world who are under bondage while we sit here in freedom. Let us remember we've got something to do. And when we read about it, you can read in the local press or hear about it or some other way, let's write. It may do no good, but at least you're, not going, you're sure there'll nothing be done good if you don't do anything. At least try. And let the Holy Spirit work in the way he works. Heavenly Father, may that be our prayer, Lord, that we'll go in your strength. And that whatever we do for the freedom of religious liberty, whatever we do for proclaiming the message of these last days, we'll go in your strength and not in our own. So bless us now, Lord, to this end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.